I'm Verite, and you're listening to Anatomy of an Artist, a podcast about people, the art they create, and the business behind their art. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Anatomy of an Artist. My guest this week is my good friend and music director, Grant Zubritsky. I've had the pleasure of working with Grant for the past five years, developing my live set from the beginning when I had no budget to the performance we put on today. Grant is a multi-instrumentalist, most recently seen on Saturday Night Live playing bass for Dua Lipa. You might have also seen him playing flute, saxophone, and synthesizer for Chet Faker. Grant is a producer, mixer, a teacher, a music director, and in this conversation, we talked about what it's like to build a career in music when you're not going down one specific path. I think there's a thing in writing and production when you're trying to write a song, when you're trying to produce a song, that if if there if the idea isn't isn't right, it's it's not like their fault or something. It's not like it's someone's fault, but then you do need to come back with if it's like, oh, I don't like this, but I do like this. I do like the way this sounds or the way this and be able to give an option, give an idea. It's also like in the ballpark, not just like, well, I like Justin Timberlake. Well, you need appropriate references. And I feel like, and this can segue into everything that we're about to talk about. So much of your role in work life is communication, right? It's communicating. Facilitator. It's Yeah, it's you're a facilitator and it's such yeah. a strange role because I'm obviously, this podcast is called Anatomy of an Artist. And so I want to talk to people about who they are, what they make, and then the business of what they make. And practically, how do you make your art work for you in building your life and career? But also, I want to look at the anatomy of my team as an artist. And so going through people who I work with and kind of painting this diagram of of what you need to sustain. And I'm really lucky to have you here, A, COVID negative. Thanks for having (laughs) me, yeah, COVID negative. Ready to stay in my apartment, basically. (laughs) We've known each other for years at this point, and I think we've worked together for the past four years. I, you know, I think it's it's four or five, because I wanna say, when did you do the Miss Mister tour? 2016. So that's four years. So that's four years. Was that the tour that we prepped for? Yeah, I think I think I saw you at South by Southwest. I came into a rehearsal. You guys went to South by Southwest, and I watched the show. Yeah. And then we prepped for the next thing. You watched the show. You saw how shanty it was. You did the show. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but it is it, like I think you and I have grown up together a lot in terms of you being a music director and kind of transitioning from touring musician and recording musician into this separate career. And so I guess before we go too far, like down that road, it's funny, we've been friends for so long. And I was thinking, what do I actually know about your upbringing? And I know you're from Philadelphia or the suburbs of. Yeah, that's correct. Um, there's not a lot of Googling I can do on you. I did like scope your website. Oh, okay. 
You're on there. We need a little verite on there. I know. I love it. What was the first instrument you started playing? I learned the saxophone from third grade. So alto saxophone. What was the motivation? Did did you want to be... Does, Kenny G doesn't play saxophone, does he? No, no, that's... Yeah, yeah, you're That's right. Kenny, Kenny G. G. Was it just a school band situation? Yeah, it was school band. It was like, you know, you get to sort of... They come in and they present all the instruments. They say, this is the trumpet. This is the saxophone. <laughs> this is the French horn, which no one picks when they're 10 years old. And the saxophone, I think, to me was was cool and like like a dude and they you know the person that presented the saxophone as an option was like well it's pretty heavy you have to wear a neck strap and I was like oh yeah I want that I want to like bear this thing you know that's difficult to play and it was um you know god bless my parents because they listened to terrible saxophone for years yeah, while I figured out how to play it that was me and the violin <laughs> it, 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 but that only lasted a month Oh, really? That's it? No one could take it. Oh, wow. It was awful. So where did the bass come in and where did you start playing in bands? So the bass came in, bass and guitar came in when saxophone, because, you know, in school band you do, you're playing like a Sousa march or something Mm -hmm. like that, which is, which is cool. I I now think that's cool. But when you're 12, it's like not, you know, you want to play what you're like listening to on the radio or something. Yeah. So, um... So the guitar and the bass came in pretty much the same time, probably around like 15, 14 or 15 to like play tool covers, you know? Yeah. That was like really needed to learn every, everything off of Enema before, uh, <laughs> before I could like go to, go to ninth grade or something like that. I'm curious, was there a music scene in Philly that you were associated with? Were you in bands at that time or were you alone in your room playing tool covers? Um, it was mostly playing tool covers on my own in my uh, parents' like you know dining room or whatever because that's where the amp lived. Oh, um, that's a bad place for the amp to live. I, you know, I don't understand why it wasn't it in in retrospect. I don't understand why it wasn't in the bedroom, but that's like that was just the setup. So again, God bless your parents. But God, yeah, God bless <laughs> my parents. You know, I didn't really. I played in high school bands for sure. And yeah. And one of the guys, two of the guys that I played with in high school actually are, continue to be professional musicians. Like three of the four people that were like in my high school band, we've all like gone on to do very different things, but like all as professional musicians, which is kind of cool. Well, I feel like that's a rarity. Pretty rare. No one in my high school band is doing anything, (laughs) (laughs) anything associated with music. Yeah. But it wasn't, we were okay. You know, in retrospect, we were bad. Absolutely, as high school bands are. You know, so there was there were places to play, and we played them. Similar to you, it, there was this disconnect of, oh, I'm in this band, but what's next? And so I guess, what did you envision your life looking like as a musician? At that point, did you envision that music would be your career? Was music a hobby? What was your plan, 17, 18, in that band? Yeah. I mean, I, I really, you know, I like really dreamed big at that point at 17, 18, that like I was going to be in a rock band and we were going to tour and we were going to be famous and all these things. And then I went to, you know, I went to college and I, I got a degree in philosophy because I think I was scared to take the plunge into music, to go to music school and to try to go to music school. And it was like, I was still a little tenuous. Mm -hmm. And so that seemed like 
Which, I mean, in retrospect, philosophy is I was not really... just about <laughs> to say, I was just about to say, philosophy feels uh, just as far-fetched as music in terms of college degree. Yeah, it sure does. Um, it, you know, I think that it was like, the college I went to, went to Hamilton College, it was very, um, it was liberal and it was, it was about learning and it was about the learning process. And so like, philosophy, English, whatever. I mean, I was not an econ math guy. Yeah. It's just that wasn't going to happen. So it was going to be some sort of humanitarian studies, general writing, reading, things like that. And philosophy just sort of, I thought, honestly, it was, it was the professors that I had that I was like, wow, this is awesome. These people are really rad. They're really smart. They're really good at like making their arguments. And so it was kind of, I was kind of swayed by the professors yeah. Into that. But that being said, I continued to play in bands in college and did more like did more touring weekend warrior stuff mm -hmm. with one particular band. And then when I was 21, I took a summer to come down and work at Blue Note Records, the jazz label. And that was sort of like that was me testing the waters of, OK, well, if I'm not going to be a professional instrumentalist or a person playing in a band. Yeah. Maybe I work in music in a different way. Did you feel like being a professional instrumentalist was out of your reach at that point? I didn't know because I, I hadn't, I took it seriously and I knew that I was serious about it, but I'm not sure I had the confidence or I didn't understand like what a life of a session musician was at all. Like I didn't, I had no concept of it. So I think I was really, yeah, just nervous. And so it was like, well, what if I explore these other options within music to work in music? I think a common theme that I found amongst people is that we have these big dreams of I'm going to, usually it plays out as I am going to be in this band. We're going to get discovered. We're going to tour the world. We're going to get famous. We're going to get rich and et cetera. And those are the dreams I feel like were instilled in us growing up because that's totally. kind of what we were shown. And I think in talking to people, everybody has their own version of that. And then what everyone's career and life actually look like are so different. And so looking back on that right now, you've transitioned from whatever that dream is into the reality of like, you, you have a pretty successful career doing a lot of different things. I guess looking back on that dream versus your reality, did you expect to have so many facets of your career? Because we can run, I think I ran through it, but you're a multi-instrumentalist. You play saxophone, flute, bass. You play synths. Do you play guitar? Yeah, en enough to sound okay. Yeah, I've yeah. never actually seen you play guitar. I think I played it. I played it in the Nick Murphy show. Ah, see, yeah, I love it. I, if you ever see a live Nick Murphy show, Grant plays every instrument <laughs> on stage. But I guess when you moved to New York, you were just playing bass, I'm assuming. Like, it was more linear. Yeah, it was. And I think that, you know, after after doing the, after trying my hand at working at Blue Note, and um, I was working production for shows as well Yeah. during that same time, that was like, oh, okay, never mind. It's either got to be like, playing music or like, I'll just do something different. 
I didn't really like, yeah. like the label was cool. And all the people I worked with there at the label were cool. And it's funny, someone, I like came across someone I worked with literally like two or three years ago, he had left Blue Note and then was managing Joseph. It's nice to see people that you came up with succeeding. Like you said, the people in your band, etc. It's like, oh, we're all doing our own things that are different versions of this initial dream that we had. Totally. I don't think I answered your question though. What was it? I don't even remember what the question was. That's the beauty of podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think you had asked about like the linear playing bass. Yeah. And that definitely was the, that was the idea. And I thought that because at that point I was really into jazz and I really was into like experimental jazz, like Mark Rubeau and stuff like that. And it was like, I saw myself as like chasing that sort of dream of being like a really fantastic bass player and being the guy that's doing sessions during the day and doing gigs and going on tour. But also, um, you know, I was like working other jobs and just figuring out how to live in New York because I was 22. I guess at this point when you're trying to get gigs and when you're trying to get jobs with these bands a how are you going about that and b how are you navigating valuing your time and services to people especially when you're starting out when i first started i was working at a clothing store in soho that was my first job in new york city i love it a fancy one it was patagonia so i don't fancy for don't you still have patagonia gear Absolutely. I still have stuff that I got then that's lasted 10 years. They have a lifetime warranty, right? They sure do. Cool. This this podcast is not sponsored by Patagonia. Yeah. So, you know, fancy in technical outerwear, I Mm -hmm. guess. I was doing that because I just, I needed to pay rent. I needed to eat. I needed to do all those things. So I knew I needed a job quickly and I got that job in like the, I don't know, within two or three weeks of moving here. At that point it was like, well, I guess I can try and join a band that is good. And then as the band gets better and becomes more successful, then, you know, follow that with the band. And that was sort of the model for a little while. I just tried to play with a lot of different bands Mm -hmm. because it was like, I don't write songs. I'm not a songwriter. And I felt like I needed to attach myself to something else that was going, that had a trajectory. Yeah. Um, And tie yourself to it and grow with that. Yes. Kind of in the same way, you're going to play bass, you're going to become the go-to bass player, then you're going to find the band again. It's like chasing this very linear path. Yeah. It's kind of like weird to admit to myself, but also I think it's important to like admit that it really was like I needed to, I needed these other people to be successful, quote unquote, or I like Mm -hmm. needed to follow this other group to success because I knew that me getting up and playing bass was like, no one was going to give a shit. Yeah. Which was, which is fine. I think that's a good thing to recognize. I did understand that my sort of success as a musician absolutely involved like other people and sort of attaching myself to this other thing. I think that has changed a lot in my outlook on my career in a cool way, in a really good way, but in a way that was, really like scary or or different at the time. Well, I think when you're dependent on somebody else, that's a very distinct narrative. For sure. uh, And it creates fear because there's this sense of, oh, if 
this band fires me, I don't have a job. Or if this project doesn't want to hire me, then I might not be able to pay rent. And so there's probably a transition. And, and you tell me from this idea of more a, a more dependent sideman to Grant Zubritsky as a business entity that provides a lot of different services that I can come to you and say, hey, can you play bass on my record? Or hey, can you be a musical director for my tour? Or can you do this mix for me? Or can you do this remix for me? And probably if I came to you and asked you to do something you didn't know how to do, you would probably figure it out. <laughs> I, I try my best. Maybe that's where the philosophy degree comes in handy because it expands so much of your job is, is merging the technical and the creative and that has a disparity to it. And so this idea that you can bring them together to communicate and also just have a little bit less limit on what you're capable of. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, I've never really thought of it that way. And I think that that's really apt. I also, the idea of Grant Zubritsky as the business entity is something that's never been spoken to me uh, <laughs> in my life. Um, but you're right, but you're totally right. And it's, it was, I think that in, in current music, it's like, you know, if you wanna, if you wanna rely on just, just doing music, yeah, you kinda, it's really hard to be a really sick bass player that, only rolls up and plays bass and goes home and that's the end of it. And I think that obviously like at this, I probably would have come to this conclusion, even if I was like a super sick bass player, Yeah, uh, I would have come to this conclusion at this point in my life anyway, but you know, that doesn't facilitate every artistic idea I have just being a bass player. And I think I came to that the more I worked with, bands and the when I was younger doing tours it was like okay cool this is cool and like being a bass player in a band is a very specific role mm -hmm. and I got really good at that role but then I also realized that that role was limiting in its own in its own respects just as any role is limiting yeah what was the first gig that you got uh when you were still solely a bass player that asked you to add a different skill set. So maybe it was, we need you to play bass and synth, or we need you to play bass and guitar. Like what was that gig and what was the most challenging part of it? It's a good question. I played in this band called Monuments for a long time. The singer remains one of my closest friends. And I think that we were, we very much worked as a band. It was a four piece the main singer and then the guitar player sort of brought song, the song ideas. And I don't know if it was necessarily called on to be like, oh, this could really use key bass mm -hmm. or a synthesizer. But it was, to me, I was like, the, the tone, like the sound palette needs to be different from my corner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were, you know, both guitar players were very uh, gear obsessed for lack of a better term, you know, lots of pedals, lots of amps, lots of tonal ideas and bass, you know, I mean, bass just has less of that. So I kind of felt like it was, <laughs> it was almost like, Oh, I want to play too. I want to have some like tonal ideas. So, mm -hmm. you know, I bought a micro Korg and that was, uh, as we all do the as, micro, the micro Korg is everyone's first in. <laughs> as we all did in 2010. Or whatever. <laughs> but so yeah, it wasn't necessarily called on me to do it but I wanted to do it and I wanted to do it to elevate the, the, the band, the sound of the band, um, which honestly is like, 
the, that was the way to do it, to, to self-impose doing, doing something. Cause then it wasn't like, well, you've got to learn how to play piano for this gig. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was sort of like, well, if you want to incorporate this, it is kind of on you to sort this out. Have um, you ever been asked to do something you didn't know how to do and then just done it and figured it out? Yeah. I mean, I have, I think that the, the timeline of, of figuring it out, it's sort of like, we're all on a, we're all on a, uh, I don't know. What's the, I can't think of a good word, but we're all on like a spectrum here of figuring uh, it out. I was going to give you a different word. So I'm glad I didn't fill in the blank. Well, what was, no, what I was, was going to say trajectory, but that would oh. have completely changed the tone of your sentence. Yeah, no. Well, okay. So like we're all on this spectrum of, on mm -hmm. a spectrum of our skills and saying like, rate your skills. Like these are my five skills. Number one being a great bass player or a great singer or a great songwriter or a great engineer. Like mm -hmm. I think everyone has that, has that spectrum of skills and like flute for me is very sort of low on my spectrum mm -hmm. um, because it's was like the newest instrument I picked up. Um, and not necessarily a priority. And not necessarily a priority. I wasn't getting like a lot of calls to play flute. Naturally. But as, but as soon as it's, for me, as soon as something's like in my spectrum, I kind of, I start to, I start to figure it out and then mm -hmm. it sort of moves within the spectrum. And I think that that's sort of the way that music works in a, in a, in a weird way that yeah. once you start doing something and you're like figuring it out and then you you sort of show some small example of, of being, you know, capable. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, Oh, well, I guess that person could do this or maybe that person, yeah. you know, I played flute on a song for you yeah. on two songs and you could have called certainly other more accomplished flautists, but your our relationship and like my understanding of your vibe musically and the way you write music that informs you asking me to do this well and your ability to play saxophone and flute it makes you more dynamic as somebody to hire so it's like being at a candy store i have options versus if you were just a bass player i would never call you for anything but that one specific thing. Sure. Yeah. So I guess, was it a decision to expand your skill set or into even beyond instruments, you know, transitioning into music direction, transitioning into more production? So was it this gradual experience or was it a decision of I need to have multiple streams of revenue and this is a practical way to do that? That's a good question. I think partially it's, it's both. And yeah. I remember watching bands and watching, you know, someone that was the bass player. Then the, maybe they play keyboard for a song or something. Mm -hmm. And that was very much like, okay, I just need to get better at playing keyboard, playing piano, playing, you know, I don't have to be the best piano player. I'm not going to be like, mm -hmm. there's just, it's not, I'm just not going to be because I, I didn't start studying it when I was five. But that was a very, that was a very like marked choice to try and be more of a yeah. multi-instrumentalist. So that was very much like a, a decision being like, okay, I, I need to get better at piano, keyboard. And what about music direction? Where did that come in? 
Music direction sort of stemmed from that in the sense that if I was playing bass, I was playing some keyboard and the singer and I were on sort of the same page of how it was supposed to sound, why not be able to take care of the music direction aspects of it, which are, you know, part technical, but part aesthetic Mm -hmm. in just how the show should sound. Yeah. So, so it was sort of like a, it, it was a natural progression for sure. And it wasn't, I don't know if it was like very, I decided on a Thursday that I was going to be a music director. Yeah. It was more of like a, I see these people doing this and working in this capacity and I want to do that. And again, it was like a, it was a similar situation. The first person I like music directed, I played in their band. Yeah. And it was this sense of, you know, she, she just like, she wasn't super tech savvy at the time. She is now. She didn't want to deal with it. She wanted to focus on writing songs and performing. It was this moment where she's, we were friends. I understood what she wanted out of the show. We liked the same things. We had the same references. Mm-hmm. And it was like, even though I didn't exactly know how to do it, she was like, well, you know, if you do this, like that would, I would, you would be my guy to take on tour to whatever. Yeah. And so I just sort of put myself up to the challenge knowing that there was opportunity there and knowing that, um, cause we did, we did do some cool touring and then her and I went off and played in the, the Nina person band, the girl from the cardigans. But I guess like it was sort of, it was the, the music director thing was similarly self self-imposed. Yeah. So it's self-imposed, but it's also an effort to to say something more than an instrumentalist because getting on the same page as a songwriter, as an artist, and saying, okay, this is the vision. And I mean, you you and I do this every once a year, mm-hmm. pretty much. Not this uh, year. Not I mean, year. actually, we did do it this year, technically. Ooh, oh, right. We did back in not, January. Not next year. <laughs> Probably not next year. But, you know, we sort of do have this like yearly or bi-yearly meeting mm-hmm. and we talk about music and we talk about references and we talk about what shows sound good and what shows sound bad and yeah, about how the set should flow and what's the vibe. And, and I love all that. Like, I love creating a thing that's not just like, oh, my bass sounds good. Well, you're creating a world. And I think that going back to this idea of you being dependent on people for work versus you being an entity that people come to for services. And I think they're two similar things, right? But they're, sure, it's two yeah. completely separate ways of, of framing it. And the idea that your bass player, there's so many bass players. There are so many phenomenally talented, trained bass players. You know this. We've auditioned people that you can call. But it's really hard to find somebody who you can build a world with, who you can get on the same page with. And so I want to take it back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I feel when, like I'm not answering your questions at all. I'm just no, sort of tangentially speaking. Listen, and- I get lost too, but I think that's part of the beauty is kind of diving in. But you and I met because, like we said, you came to this rehearsal. You heard the set. At that point, I had no money. It was a Motu and a snake into my computer. And I just remember me and my band looking at you like you were a god who knew everything about 
music and the music industry because we felt so out of the loop and so separate. At the point that we met, where do you view yourself as a music director? Were you seasoned? Were you new? How, what was your confidence level? God, you were just so wrong. You were just so wrong. <laughs> it was just wrong. Um, I was new. I mean, I think that working with you, you might have been the first project of me not playing in the band. Yeah. Because you already had a bass player. You already had your band. And it was, you just needed to kind of like pull it all together. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, I was new to that specific role. But I had a lot of experience touring and being a music director at that point. Yeah. So it was, maybe it was at a specific level, my, my experience. Um, and so sort of as some of your shows got bigger and bigger, there were certainly hurdles that we crossed together yeah. that were hurdles that I was crossing for the first time. I feel like we had a period of like three months where we were having track skips and we couldn't figure out what the specific cause was. And so every show before the show, I would wind up just calling you and we would be on the phone, like looking at things and trying to figure out what it was. And it wound up being a USB cable, like something, <laughs> like something like the most very benign, simple yeah. thing. But I think so much of touring and definitely on our end of like your end on music direction and putting together a show is, is troubleshooting and being like, I don't understand why this worked yesterday and doesn't work today. Absolutely. And there is that element of, yeah, going back. I remember that. I mean, I remember those months just like talking to my one music director friend specifically being like, oh my God, Vinny, like what the fuck is happening? Like why, <laughs> what am I doing wrong? And we, he would be like, well, I don't know. Did you do this? I'm like, oh, I did that. You know? Yeah. So many things. And some of that stuff, I feel like that's just like, you, that's trial and error. There it's was growth. No, yeah. There was no way to like skip that as, as desperately as I wanted to. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, it was just going to happen. And at that point I had a full band. It was Mike, Dave and Dylan, four instrumentalists. And for as messy as we were in the beginning, when you saw us, the saving grace of that band is everybody was technically really good. I was really lucky that when things would go wrong, we would all revert to the fact that we're musicians and we can play through this. We can transition through it. So it's almost exciting. God, I don't <laughs> miss the anxiety though. No. And it's, you know, and I think that that's a really important comment too. And I think that that's something that like, I know I really still value and I really do, you know, I really still value playing and people being really great creative players mm -hmm. and I almost like you know maybe to my a negative I, I give people a pass if they're just like a really creative player <laughs> yeah. not, not to not a negative it's just you know I I don't know there's it, being a creative player and being able to get up and just like make a thing happen on stage is such a such a cool thing and it's such a it's not a lost art there's plenty of people out there playing that are amazing and incredible. But I think there's also, you know, there's also a very streamlined type of show. Mm -hmm. There's a, this, the, there's this idiom that you have to subscribe to at least a bit. We do like Absolutely. In, in the Verite live set of like performing a very polished, very streamlined show. 
Yeah. But I also just love that. I love the elements that don't have to do with that streamlined polished show. And I think that it was almost, it's almost cool for your project. And there are other projects that I've worked on that I feel like I could say this about that when I came in, it was like, all right, get this as streamlined as possible. And then in the, in the more recent years, it's been like, well, we know how to streamline. Let's, let's not streamline. Let's like play more. Let's add more transitions. Let's add more vibe. And I think it's helped the, the show. And I think that that has also, I mean, but also that, that has changed with your writing and with your production and the, the direction that you're going as an artist that as well as has informed the live show as it should, because it's at the end of the day, your show. Yeah, it's growth. And so I think that, you know, even looking at the new skin tour, which personally I think was the best thing that we've put together, RIP that, that got cut short because of COVID, but this idea of we're dealing with higher quality production, therefore the source material for, uh, running tracks and, and utilizing technology is so much better and so much more elevated and add to that, I think is the confidence, your confidence and my confidence combined that yes, we need to make a polished competitive live set and in competitive I mean in the sense if you're on a bill with someone you need to sonically compete with them you need to be as loud as them you need the same amount of clarity otherwise you're going to sound bad you're listening to it with a a critical ear like you, you yeah. just can't not and also to be inspired there i've definitely Absolutely. gone and seen live shows and texted you and said we need to have a conversation about what i just saw because i want to introduce that but i think for you and i it's now there's this point of i want brilliant musicians who learn the foundation of what we need them to learn where we have the tracks and the polished elements ready to go. And then there's a gap in the middle. And sometimes we fill that gap with more tracks or more things that are programmed, but we also really fill that gap with the creative players that we bring on. And Will and Brian, who have toured with me for the past two years, are perfect examples of those players who learn the foundations and then do things we never, ever would have thought of. And even like while we're on tour, the two of them are working out this hit because they've been trying to get it for four shows and Will is like extending and hitting on the two instead of the downbeat. That And that's what makes music exciting is having that gap and being able to fill that gap with something intuitive and impulsive in the moment. Totally. I'm not saying that the new skin tour was the best show ever. And, and that's the top. Like, yeah. of course you're going to still continue to grow and the show will continue to grow, but that is kind of where you want to be. Like you want to be able to fall back on this great show. And then you want to have this sort of intermediate space that that can be changed and can be filled and can be kind of honed while you're on tour because it's, because then you're, you're staying in it and you're staying checked in yeah. and you're being musical and you're not just like robot on stage playing the notes. You're having fun. Yeah, you're having because fun. Because you're playing music. Playing music. As a player, being part of Nick's show was always like that as well. Tell me about the Nick Murphy show because I feel like I saw you perform, I think it was Webster Hall. 
Yeah, it was a while ago. Huh? Yeah, and it was such an impressive show. And But what I was most impressed with was the sheer musicality. So much of that felt live and exciting. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a really exciting show. And um, all of the shows, all the iterations of the shows, because much like you, when I started with Chet Faker, which transitioned to Nick Murphy, which, you know, is transitioned now, back to Chet, Faker. which is now transitioned back to Chet Faker and will continue transitioning. You know, I think it was more like we're talking about this more sort of these are the 10 songs. These are the tracks. This is the part. You play the part. Great. Sounds good. That's the end of it. And then as that was more comfortable and to Nick and the and the MD Kirk, to their credit, the more comfortable they were with like the sort of concise show, the more it was time to push boundaries and play more and say, well, we don't really need that in the track. Or there was a time, there was a time where Nick really was obsessed with just having as many keyboards as possible, which was fun. It was Mm -hmm. also challenging in its own respect. Uh, There was one keyboard in particular that was, uh, that was very finicky. What was it? It was the Andromeda A6. It sounds complex. It was, oh man, it was a headache for years, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> but but there was something really fun about it, you know, and it didn't really interact well with the clock a lot of the time. And it was, there were some nightmare moments, but but never really to the audience probably. Yeah, just for you. Just it was, it was your own us, bubble of panic. God, for the five of us on stage saying like, oh God, this is off. Like, this is just off. And there's nothing we can do about yeah, it. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm just here just playing it off. But yeah, the more that show opened up, the more fun it was, you know? You know, it's funny, as a musician, as someone that wants to get up and put on a really good show, it's also great to just, like, play the song really well. And I guess I, I value both sides of it. And there were plenty of times there was sort of, like, a like a breakdown moment in a, in a song in particular that was very, uh, just always sort of broke down into a band moment where everyone's sort of playing, improvising, doing, doing a thing. Yeah. And, um, and I think this is just most musicians, like they have sort of their, their go-to licks, their go-to parts. I can play this and it sounds good. You know, I did that, but then I also really pushed myself to, to be different, to play something different every night, which is cool, which is, which is different as well from like playing a really straightforward pop show. I mean, it also goes to the caliber of musicians you're playing with too. When you're playing with people who are also pushing themselves, trying to put forth the absolute best show and are serious about it, you want to push yourself to, to match and or exceed that. And that becomes its own fun challenge. Absolutely. And I think that shout out to those guys, because I think that they, all the guys, Nick included in that band were very proficient at their instruments. And as someone that was playing my secondary instruments in that band, it definitely pushed me to be like, ah, shit, I need to be better. And it was good. It was like a good pressure for me. Moving the saxophone up the spectrum. (laughs) I know. (laughs) So as we we hit the sunset of this, I do want to end on COVID. Right now, you know, we're sitting here, we're talking about touring and we're talking about all of these things that you do in person that don't currently exist. There is no end to this tunnel. We are definitely in the middle. 
we've talked about all of these different facets of your career, and I'm curious how you've adapted, right, to stay afloat and survive this time, and also what your goals are moving forward when we don't know when touring is coming back. All right, so COVID. Yeah, transitioning to a COVID world as a multi-instrumentalist, music director, everything you do. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you can imagine, 90%, 95% of the work that I've done since March has not been in person, Mm -hmm. you know? And again, back to, I've played on two songs for you remotely. That's been a big part of it. Recording yourself at home is is a really valuable thing. And not only recording yourself at home, but just like having a idea of sounds and mixing and production. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that I started doing. You know, I, I, I've put out some solo material and I have a big old demo folder that I need to start sifting through again here. You know, COVID was like, okay, cool. You're not showing up at a rehearsal or music directing or playing, or you're not doing that for a number of months. And as by by May, two months into it, it was like, oh, this isn't happening the rest of the year. If I play a gig, more power to me, but like, this is probably not happening. It's not reliable. Certainly not reliable. Certainly not like, oh, you're gonna like make money being on tour this year out of just a sheer financial idea. So yeah, the like home recording, production, mixing has been the move. Being able to explore the side of my career that is being more creative in my own little world mm-hmm. at home is is cool and it's fun and it's different. And it's sort of, honestly, it's sort of like, it's, it's a lot like music directing, really. I mean, it's arrangement, right? Yeah. Production and mixing are about arranging a piece of music and making it sound the best it can. And that's what you do as a music director as well. So it felt like the right step for me career wise. Mm-hmm. And of course there's lots of things that I'm still learning and I'm still not good at, but it was at least like, at least it made sense to me that it was like, all right, well, I do have these skills. I just have been employing them differently. That's been what I've been up to. How important is it to be adaptive? You know, I'm not going to remember who said this and your uh, listeners can correct me if I'm wrong, but There was a quote that my English teacher in high school said, and it was, uh, repetition is the hobgoblin of feeble minds, something like that. And my dad said similar things about, you know, lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was always really important to him. And I firmly believe in that being, oh, consistency is the hobgoblin of evil minds. What's a hobgoblin? Um, you know, the devil, the like, the thing that keeps you down. Ah. It's like a mythical creature. Cool. Um, <laughs> Never heard of that. Next Verite album. Hobgoblin. <laughs> That's your metal album. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, but it's sort of, I do love that idea of like, well, and I firmly believe that if you're a little bit uncomfortable, you're probably pushing yourself in the right direction. Yeah. And it's so hard to be there. I understand that feeling and I've been there so many times, but I know that I've grown as a musician, as a person. Do you feel satisfied? It's a really good question. 
I think that we put, we put satisfaction or, or uh, goals of satisfaction on ourselves at different points in our lives. Is my like 22 year old self satisfied? I would say, yeah, mm-hmm. because I've done things that were, that were goals or dreams that I had as a teenager or into my early twenties as, you know, a mid thirties musician, am I satisfied? Not necessarily because I have these new goals and I have these new ideas, but I don't know if like satisfaction is, is a benchmark that I am ever going to recognize with like definitive value. Like, I think that it's going to continue to be like part of my little spectrum that I talked about Mm -hmm. of this goal that's going to just continue to move. And yeah, I'll probably hit other goals. I hope to in my artistic life, but it's going to keep moving. And I think it's the same for anyone. I would, I would assume you would say pretty much the same thing. I'm trying to find a balance because I'm never going to be satisfied, but I'm trying to be content being grateful and happy with where I am while always recognizing that the second I hit a goal, I already have four more goals. And it's and that's a balance and that's a practice that is daily. Yeah, goal setting and like achievement and satisfaction is they're all like they're all the uh they're all the tenets of the corporate conference I just scored. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um but I think that the real, the real like uh, cog there to be aware of is how you deal with those goals and not to, to take those goals and put them in a lane of stressful achievements that have to happen. Yeah, I mean, that's just unhealthy. Absolutely. This has been so fun. Yeah, this has been great. Good. All right, I'm going to stop this recording. Cool. But thank you so much for doing yeah. this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Anatomy of an Artist is a podcast created, recorded, and edited by me, Verite. It was produced by Vanessa Magos with the help of Yesenia Bonilla. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.